Amen. Good morning. Welcome to worship this morning. Glad that you're here with us. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 today. So if you have a Bible, you can open to that. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are ushers coming uh, that will let you use a Bible and even take it home if you need to. You can also find it on the YouVersion app. I'm excited to spend time with you in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And this is probably one of the, my favorite chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes. I was talking with someone just this last week and uh, they were saying the same thing. So there's at least two of us who really like Ecclesiastes. Uh, I've taught through it a couple times and I first heard it preached through uh, back in the first church that we served in in, in Boone, Iowa back in the 90s. Uh, in that church, our, our senior pastor preached through it and uh, I remember one day when he came into the office he was very excited. He and his wife had just been to the doctor's office and they discovered that she was pregnant with twins. They already had three kids, so this would make their family of five into a family of seven. And I remember the first thing he did was to go down the street uh, to the car dealership to fi- try to find a minivan uh, to fit all his kids in. So that was a great surprise for them at that time and a change in life. And as the time of the birth approached and his wife was 38 weeks pregnant, she went to the doctor's office because she hadn't felt much movement in her womb. And she ended up going to the hospital and she delivered two twins that were stillborn. And it was a really difficult time for them and a difficult time for us as a staff, but there was joy there as well because it just happened that in the next room, our youth pastor and his wife were having their first child at the same time. And I share that not only because that really illustrates uh, death and joy in, in this passage, but also because afterwards, uh, senior pastor, I remember him commenting to me uh, since he had preached Ecclesiastes a couple years before, now he really understood the book of Ecclesiastes personally because he had gone through and they had gone through with pain and the suffering that they experienced at that time. What do we do when God doesn't move the mountains we want him to move? How do we handle the inevitability of death and the unpredictability of life? Ecclesiastes 9 really gives us some principles uh, for us to be able to move forward. Ecclesiastes is a hard book. It's, It's a difficult book because life is hard. And Solomon is very realistic about life in this book. And it's helpful because more than any other wisdom book, Solomon addresses pain and suffering and difficulty and death and joy specifically in this chapter. Ecclesiastes is for all of us. You're probably uh, one of two type of people here this morning. Either you're, you're going through or you have gone through difficult times or you will in the future. Uh, because this life is difficult, but God is good even in this life. And the thing that comes to my mind as I was thinking about Ecclesiastes this la- last couple weeks is I think of a puzzle, and you've probably all done puzzle before, maybe on your kitchen table or maybe on vacation, and you pour out all the pieces of the puzzle on the table, and you start to put different parts together. Some of us do the edges because they're straight and we can find those spots. Some of us find different colors or pictures and start to put those together. But our our life is, is is a puzzle in that we don't have all the pieces. And we start to work on it, we get some edges and we get some different pictures, but we realize that all the pieces aren't there. Not only are all the pieces not there, but we don't have the picture on the cover of the box to show us what the puzzle should look like when it's finished. But our hope is that God made the puzzle. 
and he made the pieces and he designed it in a specific way. And we don't have to understand what the puzzle will look like in the end, but we do need to understand that he's the maker and the keeper of it and he loves us with all his heart and soul. Chapter nine in Ecclesiastes specifically gives us four points for how to understand uh, the puzzle and the unpredictability of life, four principles that, that we can learn from. The first one is this, principle number one is God is in control. God is in control. Let me read starting with verse 17 of chapter eight and then read through the first three verses of chapter nine. Solomon writes this, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in that all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. God's children are in the hands of God, as he says there in verse one. And God is in control. God is sovereign, as theologians like to describe it. Even in the face of evil and suffering in the world, God is in control. And Solomon emphasizes this throughout the book. He says back in chapter seven, who can make straight what he has made crooked? He says in chapter three, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. What does it mean that, that God is sovereign? Well, first of all, it means that God created everything. He is the creator and maker of all that we see, all that exists. He exercises his rule over it. There is not one square inch of the entire universe where God does not say, this is mine, because he made it all and he rules it all. He rules it through his authority, through his control, and through his presence. But not only does he rule, but he, he loves us as well. His, his sovereignty is expressed through his covenant love, his committed love to his people. And that's why that phrase, he holds us in his hands, is so special, because it's a very personal phrase. God has each of us individually and all of us together in his hand. And I think one of the points Solomon is making is not just that God is in control, but the opposite is also true. We are not in control. Now, no, don't brush that off. Think about that. Let it marinate in your mind. I am not in control. You are not in control. Sometimes we think we are. Maybe not consciously, but subconsciously we, we think, this is the way things should go, and this is what should happen next. And we realize when those things don't happen, we realize that we're not in control. We, this, this verse came up in Philippians as we were looking at it on a Friday morning in, in our men's group. Why do we grumble and complain? We grumble and complain because we think in some way that things should go differently and that God's not doing it the best way. And so we have better ideas of how God should do it, so we grumble and complain because we have a better idea than God of what should happen. 
I was reading in a book this week on, on prayer and the offer suggested, in fact, he, he laid out a resignation letter that all of us should write. And it's a different kind of resignation letter. Let me just give you the first line. And each of us needs to write this to ourselves. I officially resign from my role as the third person of the Trinity. We all need to admit to ourselves we're not the junior Holy Spirits. It's not the Father and the Son and Craig Johnson. It's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a hard lesson to learn that we're not in control. We don't control other people. We're not lord over our children. We don't rule our money, our finances, our job, the weather. Can I get an amen on that? Or anything else. God is in control. Verses 11 through 12 illustrate this. Turn over there. Solomon writes, Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. All these things that we think would make us better, all these things that some superheroes have. We're not fast enough, we're not strong enough, we're not wise enough, we're not rich enough, we're not knowledgeable enough. All of us one day are going to be surprised by our death. Not that it happens by chance, but it's a surprise to us. Verse 12 says it, man does not know his time. Like a fish that is taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This wisdom book is very similar to another wisdom book in the Bible, uh, the book of Job. And listen to what Job says after God rebukes Job for Job thinking that he was in control, that he should have some say in what should happen. Job says this in Job 42 to God. I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's undisputable. No one in this world has ever figured out how to stop death. And no one has to figure out, ever figure out how to keep themselves alive forever or keep someone else alive. And that is what Solomon is saying here. That's, that's the undisputable fact that he's saying. And because of that, we should understand in everything else that we are finite and God is infinite. We're in his hands and we need to grow in thinking of how to understand him, how to understand his ways and grow in our dependence upon him. Asaph says it this way in Psalm 73, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And what he's saying there is he was struggling with the difficulty of life, particularly of evil people triumphing and good people suffering, and he didn't understand it until he went into God's presence, until he spent time with God in worship and in prayer, uh, thinking about and reading his word, growing closer to an understanding of God. Then he started to understand how God works. And even though he didn't understand every single situation and why every single outcome came, he understood that God was good and that God is great. One person says it this way, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So we have hope. Our second principle is that we have hope in verses four through six. 
Solomon writes this, but he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Notice the contrast here between the lion and the dog. Lion, back then, the king of the jungle, and even now, most respected animal. At that time, uh, the dog was an animal that was looked down upon, a scavenger, so he's contrasting the best and the worst. And he's saying, yeah, it's great if you're a lion, but if you're dead, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you are. After you've died, you have no more hope. But a a living dog still has hope. Even the, the smallest who's still living has hope. And I love how that's portrayed. One of my favorite favorite books and my favorite authors is, is J.R.R. Tolkien. And in the Lord of the Rings and that trilogy, he really displays that well, how Frodo and Sam are involved in a story that's greater than them. And he's given them a purpose in life and there's hope even in the midst of difficulties and, and struggles and, and near death, God is working through them. And Tolkien, who was a believer, who was a friend with C.S. Lewis and others, uh, really displays that well in that story that we're all part of God's story. And each of us goes through part of that story and we die and we pass on and someone else takes over for us. But God has a plan for us and he wants to use us in specific ways if we'll let him. And Solomon illustrates this in verse 13 as he, he shares of this event that happened in history. Solomon says this in verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun and it seemed great to me There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now, apparently Solomon is telling of a, of a true account of the, of the city that was under siege, that was going to be finished and taken over, and this, this poor wise man had wisdom enough to save the city. No one remembered him. The city was saved, but no one remembered him. But still, his wisdom was good. He was following the Lord and helping others and using the wisdom that God had given him. And I think what Solomon is saying here is, is don't give up, don't lose heart, don't turn back, don't go it alone. Trust that God will work in each situation for his good and, your, and his glory and uh, depend on other people and trust that God will use them in your life as well. Third principle is found in verse nine, accept the gift. And I just wanna look at a little phrase in verse nine and see what Solomon is saying there. Solomon says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. Some of your passages might say that's your your lot in life, but but what he's talking about is, is something we probably all understand and maybe it's happened to us before if you've ever drawn straws before. Allison helped me out this morning, our children's ministry director helped me find some straws. And you've probably all done this before. And sometimes you draw 
the long straw and sometimes, well, there's a short straw. Sometimes you feel like you've always done, drawn the short straw. But that's not the way Solomon is portraying this here. What he's saying is, each of us have our portion, our lot in life, and it's, it's a gift. It's what God has designed for you. So even though this might be the short straw, it's still a good straw because it says Craig Johnson on it. And this is, this is my lot in life, and this is, this is your lot in life here. And whatever it is, it's, it's good because it's a gift from God. God has given you to live and to do, and he will provide for you in it. Solomon says it this way in Ecclesiastes 5, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Our lot is our portion, it's it's what God has given to us and it should be lived out with dependence and contentment. First of all, dependence. I love what Kelly Capick does. Kelly Capick is is a college professor And he understands when students go home for their first break, whether it's Christmas or or the following summer, uh, after the independence, the first independence of of college life or some other part of life, each student has to relate to, wrestle with relating to their parents again. You've had independence, I remember this time, and then you go back home and your parents want to tell you what to do, and it doesn't take very long to get frustrated with them, does it? Any college students here can relate to that? And so what he does is he he tells them when they go home, after a few days of frustration with your parents, do this. Now, this may sound weird, but he says do this. Take a shower and look at your belly button. And it does sound weird, but he insists that this, this exercise helps us to resist the temptation that our culture says that we are self-made people. The belly button tells all of us that we came from someone else. We didn't create ourselves. We're creatures. We're creations of a mother and a father. We have history. We don't determine our own identity. We're begotten, not manufactured. We owe our very existence to others, and and life is a gift. We're dependent on other people. We live in relationship with other people. But even more so, we live in relationship to God, we're dependent on him because he made us male and female and our identity isn't determined by our feelings or what we think we should be but by God who determines who we are. We're necessarily bound to other creatures, other people. We're finite creatures and we live before the face of an infinite God and we're all dependent upon him. Second, this gift should teach us contentment. It should teach us acceptance of all of life, good as well as bad. And even in it, even in especially in the bad things, being alert to what God is doing and what he's trying to teach us and how he's trying to use the difficult circumstances of our lives. Corey Ten Boom relates this story. Corey Ten Boom wrote the book, The Hiding Place. Her family was, was hiding Jews in Nazi Germany and Corey and Betsy were taken to the same concentration camp and they were in the same barracks at the concentration camp. And she and her sister, Betsy, learned to give thanks for the fleas. 
Their barrack was infested with fleas, and you would think that'd be awful. You're in a concentration camp, and you're itching all the time, but the blessing of it was the guards never came in their barracks. The guards didn't want to get fleas, and so they stayed away. So Corey and Betsy and the people in their barracks could read scripture together, they could pray together, they could worship God together, and the fleas were actually a blessing to them when they saw it that way. And they were content in that difficult situation because God was still using that difficult situation for good. Contentment and dependence. Accepting the gift that God has given us. Finally, the last principle, live the gospel. Live the gospel, verses seven through 10. Solomon has a number of joy passages in this book and this is one of them. He says, go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going." Just to summarize, Solomon is saying this, life, life is not what, what it should be. It's absurd because of sin. But life has hope for those of us who are in God's hands. And joy is the indication and the confirmation of that hope, according to scripture. And I really think this is the gospel according to Ecclesiastes. First, Solomon is telling us here that God commends joy. In fact, that's the phrase he uses in chapter eight, verse 15. Joy isn't an end in itself, but joy is a means to see who the giver is and to rejoice in him. And he encourages us in this not to rejoice in the gift, but rejoice in the giver. One person used this illustration of an orange. I could could eat this orange, this orange wouldn't last forever, but I can enjoy it that way. But I could also use it to, to hit a home run. So if I took out a bat and I whacked this thing as far as I could, Uh, The orange wouldn't last very long, would it? And it probably wouldn't go very far either because that's not what its intended purpose is. It's intended to be eaten and be enjoyed, not to use as a baseball. And if we want to enjoy anything's value, we have to treat it according to the use God gave it. We have to understand that certain things are not an end themselves. They're not meant to give us complete satisfaction. They're just meant to give us satisfaction in the moment in the day, but they're meant also to point to the giver of who gives us that gift. So Solomon is telling us here, don't make your blessings your God. Next he said God gives joy. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Every gift that we have is from our Heavenly Father. Not only does he give it, but he approves it. God approves of those good and faithful servants who trust in him. He approves of those who find their greatest joy in God, his sons and his daughters. And it's kind of like this. If, if you had a young child and they asked you for a drink of water, you'd probably say to them, you don't have to ask for a drink of water. You can just go get a drink of water whenever you want. And that's the way it is with the gifts God gives us. Enjoy them whenever you want to because I've, I've approved of them and I give them to you to enjoy In fact, he commands it in this passage. There are five different imperatives. He says, go, eat, drink, enjoy, and do. He tells us to enjoy those gifts. 
He tells us to enjoy them in our, in our feasting, in our eating, verses 7 through 8. Whenever we gather with others to eat or to drink together, enjoy that because that's a gift from God. And he talks about it in this way, about people wearing white. They wore white in that climate to stay cool, but the white also pictures those who are approved and accepted by God, those who have made, been made white from their sins, that have been purified by God. We should enjoy God in our feasting. We should enjoy God in our, in our families as well, in our relationships. God has given us relationships to enjoy. And the illustration he uses here is of the marriage relationship, but that's just one example of many examples of relationships God gives us to enjoy. And we should also enjoy him in our, in our function or the things that we do. All of us have a, a work to do. Our work may be being a student, maybe being a child, maybe being a mother or a father. We may have a, a job to do or we may be retired but still doing things. So we have our, our work to do, but we also have our eternal work to do. Our work that we're doing for the Father, the calling that he's given us to share the gospel. We all have that function and we need to do that with all our might because we get joy there. We get joy in our, in our functions, we get joy in our, in our families, we get joy in our feasting. David Gibson says this about this chapter. He says, God uses different tools to make us homesick for heaven. In this chapter, he is set to work with some of them. Death and sickness and uncertainty and disaster and sorrow and grief. All these are means God uses to dislodge us from seeking our security here. But so too are the gifts God gives us. His gifts are also meant to make us homesick precisely because they're so good. And I didn't notice it till this week, but if you look at verses seven through 10, it sounds like a wedding, doesn't it? We have food and drink and white garments and oil and a husband and wife. And I think Solomon is not just thinking about this present world, but he's pointing us to the ultimate wedding feast in heaven when we as God's people will be his bride presented to Christ radiant and without blemish and without stain. And we'll enjoy that ultimate feast together that will just begin and that will last forever. And the gifts, the good gifts that we receive in this earth are just a foretaste, just a, a small glimmer of the brightness and, and the radiant of that dawn when we'll celebrate that day which will last forever with him. I like how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4, and let me use this as we conclude. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, this difficult reminder, this, this realistic reminder to us that we will all one day leave this world. And so it matters how we live now and who and what we worship. Lord, cause us in the difficulties of life, help us and guide us and direct us in the difficulties of life, not to be discouraged by them, but know 
that there is one who is trying to encourage us even through our difficulties. That you are God and Lord of all, that you give us hope and that you give us a life, this life as a gift. Help us to accept it, Lord. Help us to live out the gospel each day, to be a witness to a dying world that's perishing without you. Lord, we pray this in your name.